Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May of 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast. On the left. (laughs) That's when the cannibalism started. Boys, boys, boys. Why do boys commit so many crimes? Well, they're bored, I think. Is that? No, why do young boys grow into men and then do all of these crimes? Women hide them so much better. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I don't. I, people aren't looking for women to commit crimes. Everyone's looking for boys. We're all pre-criminals until proven otherwise. I had a listener send me a casting breakdown of the new Bell Gunness movie. You're you're gonna love this. There's the whole thing coming up. They're searching for a name only for Bell Gunness, but the way they described her was <laughs> tall, buxom, oh, uh, sensual. Like these are the words that they used. What? That she was a lithe panther that, from <laughs> on one side, was a purring cat, a velveteen cat, and the other uh-huh. a deadly adversary. And I was like, this is who is writing this? They got it all wrong. <laughs> That is horrible. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Welcome to Last Podcast on the Left, Relaxed Fit. Uh, I am hanging out with the beautiful Marcus Parks, and of course, we also have Henry Zabrowski in sunny Los Angeles. Yep. And today's guest for the show is our favorite true crime author in the world, Harold Schechter. Thank you so much for joining us, Harold. Thank you, man. Very excited to be here. Say, I, I got a question. What Bell Gunness movie were you just referring to? I it was a new, it was a breakdown. Someone just, it's not the new new one because I know there was a, there's like a big one coming out that I believe Charlize Theron no. is Bell Gunness. It's like <laughs> she one can't of those be where they Bell put Gunness, though. They just put a fat suit on her and then they <laughs> to say that it's she's incredible, you know. But I got this breakdown. The way they broke, the way they, I have to find the actual listing. But it was Bell Gunness and describing her as essentially like uh, the, the the only way to put it was she was uh, a, a lot of vagina from Austin Powers. <laughs> I am. You know what? I don't think that there should be fat suits allowed in Hollywood. If you wear a fat suit, you're not eligible for the bachelor or for the Oscar. Uh, it, it's it's f- factual appropriation. It is it, it's fat cultural appropriation, and I don't like it. We've already began this off the rails. <laughs> 
Well, Harold's new book, The Ragged Stranger, The Hero, The Hobo, and The Crime That Shocked Jazz Age Chicago, is now available on Kindle and is free with Kindle Unlimited, clocking in at a brisk 75 pages. The Ragged Stranger is a tale that personally I would kind of describe as like a 1920s analog to the Scott Peterson case. but with even more twists and turns throughout. So, Harold, how did you find the story of the ragged stranger, and what was it about the story that compelled you to tell it? By the way, yeah, it's funny you should say Scott Peterson because just uh, you know a little while ago I was trying to think of recent analogs, and Scott Peterson was the first that came to my mind. Also, but um, you know, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I'm so immersed in the history of American crime that I, uh, I'm, you know, I'm never sure exactly where I come across references to some of these things. But uh, back in the 1940s, there was a comic book called Crime Doesn't Pay, uh, which you guys might have seen, you know, which is <laughs> was one of these incredibly lurid, sensationalistic comic books marketed to young children under the pretext that they were going to be edified in some way. It's so much fun, though. Now everyone's <laughs> mad about it. They're saying true crime content's doing that now. Like, now true crime content is making everything easy for children to digest. But it's been happening forever. Oh, yeah. You know, kids would read these magazines, read these comic books, and thought, wow, crime doesn't really pay. Meanwhile, they're totally getting off on these, you know, incredibly lurid, sensationalistic comic books. This is before oh, yeah, yeah. comic book. Code. Anyway, one of these stories and one of the issues was the Carl Wanderer case. I think that's where I first came across it. And, you know, it was one of the most sensational crimes of the 1920s, but one that very few people have heard of. It's nice because it evens out being called a nerd for reading a comic book in public. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, yeah, you think I'm a nerd? You think this is a comic book? This is teach me how to gut you. <laughs> <laughs> so this was like a mat. Can you hit some of the points of the the of this shooting just so we could t- talk about it a little bit without spoiling the whole thing so that people can kind of understand the structure of this crime? Well, um, I'll try to avoid too many spoilers, although it's hard. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, basically, a Wanderer, um, uh, had been a soldier. He was the first uh, a soldier during this uh, expedition down in Mexico. And then during World War One, uh, he fought in France when the United States entered World War One, which was like 1918, came back, married um, basically his childhood sweetheart, uh, who immediately got pregnant. Mm. Uh, and then uh, he decided, well, uh, what happened was they went out to a movie one day and when they returned home, uh, a, uh, a very um, uh, raggedy uh, homeless guy followed them into the vestibule of their building um, and uh, was about to hold them up. Uh, Wanderer pulled out the service revolver he always carried uh, and started shooting this guy. And this guy was also shooting, supposedly, the gun he was carrying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when all the... When all the gunfire uh, stopped, uh, the uh, the mugger was dead, and uh, Wanderer's pregnant wife was dying, uh, and Wanderer was hailed as a hero uh, for having killed this uh, thief who had yeah. shot his wife. Well, you never you never know what's going to happen in a, in a vestibule. <laughs> <laughs> Vestibules can be very scary. I've been. <laughs> Um, especially with the lights out. Anyway, so Wanderer was hailed as this hero. 
you know, this guy had held him up, Wanderer pulled out his gun, shot the bad guy, but unfortunately not before the bad guy shot Wanderer's wife. That was a story that was in all the newspapers. Uh, it turned out there was more to the tale than. Ooh. Oh, okay. So this is very, this is very similar. Where he's he has been labeled, well, but reverse. Where like Scott Peterson was immediately the villain, but it's all centered on a very a sweet woman that just managed to just be in the crosshairs of a bunch of people that wanted her dead for being pregnant. Well, ultimately, yes. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so can I go ahead and do the spoilers? Sure. I if mean, you it's, want it's to. A, I mean, it really is. like it, It's a fantastic story, even with the spoilers. It's great. Well, it turned out, you know, there were just all these, you know, like suspicious things about Wanderer's story. You know, like altogether there were 10 bullets fired in this tiny vestibule. He came away without a scratch. Meanwhile, these other two people were lying dead. Um, so... Uh, you know, this was a very no-holds-barred time in American tabloid journalism, and you had all these, um, uh, you know, rabid news hounds following the story. Anyway, they managed to discover that the um, Colt uh, semi-automatic pistol that supposedly this homeless guy had been carrying and wielding uh, actually belonged to Carl Wanderer's cousin. Oh, Jesus Ooh. Christ. You got to wipe the gun. You got to clean the numbers. <laughs> you got to do something. And they also discovered that Carl Wanderer had borrowed it from his cousin earlier on that afternoon. Anyway, uh, turned out, you know, when he finally confessed that the whole thing was a plot by Wanderer to get rid of his wife. Damn. This is where the Scott Peterson analogy comes in and, you know, a whole right. bunch of people so what he had done was he had gone out, he had found this, um, you know, street guy, uh, said he had a job for him, you know, offered him some money, said, all you got to do is follow me and my wife home and then pretend to hold us up. Oh, poor bastard. He didn't know. He was just trying to go along to get along and get a job or something, but get never have money. a job where you have to voluntarily just wave a gun around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, the newspapers kept calling him the poor boob. <laughs> because- <laughs> oh, that is the worst. He's dead, and they're calling him the poor boob. <laughs> That's what he came to be known as. Oh, and of course, we are talking about uh, Harold Schechter's most recent book. It's a tiny one, so you can get through it very quickly over your lunch break. Yeah, uh, I read it in a couple hours. It's a, it, And it's full of amazing characters. Like Carl Wanderer himself is such a strange, rich character. And the name of that book is Ragged Stranger. So make sure you get out there and support Harold Schechter's new venture. I'm sure it'll be very exciting. And I'm sure there's much more in the book than you've already talked about. Uh, yes, quite a bit more. Well, you know how they discovered the crime. Then, you know, he he uh, he had three separate trials, Carl Wander, um, all of which are pretty interesting. And it turned out that um, the reason he decided to get rid of his nine months pregnant wife uh, was he wanted to go back to the army and hang around with other guys. Uh, what? <laughs> Wait, what? That is the craziest reason ever to not have a family. Yeah. Well, they thought, you know, it's because he had a girlfriend um, and he was sort of uh, seeing this other young lady. But basically it was because he just wanted to hang around with other guys. 
Yeah. Is it was it a uh, like slapping butts thing, having fun in the shower, <laughs> dropping the soap on purpose? What was going on? Why did you want to go back into the uh, military? Yeah, well, it was a little uh, ambiguous. Um, you know, some people felt very, very strongly uh, that there was a distinct homoerotic element to this fantasy, especially after Wanderer said that he couldn't stand the thought of touching his wife. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But a lot of guys, from what I, I was actually just recently reading a an account of a of a man who came home from the war. It was recently. It was it came home from Afghanistan, and he said the main thing he, he said camaraderie, which just sound like maybe it's light fraudage happening, like on the front line. But it's the 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 also like the order and the it's if it, it's adventure, it's anything but walking around like in a suburban life. This quote unquote like I've settled down. I used to be a warrior, like literally a warrior, and now I'm here doing all of this stuff, and I'm not. I can't smoke cigars inside anymore and curse. And because I think it's more the killing people. <laughs> they yeah. can't kill. They can still smoke cigars inside. But Marcus, what do you want to talk to uh, Harold about? Well, I think. I mean, I definitely want to keep talking about this a little bit. I mean, it's. I mean, in addition to just the crime itself, like a lot of The Ragged Stranger is about how the media covered the crime mm. at the time. So how do you think true crime coverage has changed at all, or if at all, uh, from you know 100 years ago to the way they covered, say, like the Scott Peterson case or the Casey Anthony case? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're talking about, you know, the 1920s, again, was really the golden age of tabloid journalism. Um, and, you know, you had, I don't know if you ever saw uh, the movie The Front Page, you know, which uh, Ben, H these two Chicago journalists, Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur, who went on to become incredibly successful Hollywood screenwriters, you know, they first became big writing this uh, big smash hit Broadway play called The Front Page, which was made into several different movies, uh, and also very famously a version uh, with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell called His Girl Friday. Um, so, but, but, you know, these guys were these bare-knuckle journalists who would go to extraordinary lengths, you know, to turn up all, you know, to investigate these crimes. Mm -hmm. You know, they were you know, often doing more investigation and more successful investigation than the police were, and then turned it into, you know, these incredibly lurid stories. You know, I mentioned in my in uh, The Ragged Stranger, uh, one of Charles MacArthur's favorite uh, famous stories uh, had to do with a Chicago dentist who'd been accused of molesting one of his patients. And the headline was, Dentist Fills Wrong Cavity. <laughs> <laughs> that was an episode of Seinfeld as well. Remember that? So, um, you know, so on the one hand, again, you're talking about a certain kind of journalism you know, a certain kind of very, very sensationalistic mm. journalism uh, that, uh, again, defined the tabloids back then and, and, you know, still defines tabloid media today. So you think it was you think it's less classless now than it was in the 1920s? Because we have some pretty sensational headlines. I remember I'm always struck by, I think it was 17 people killed in the Upper West Side, uh -huh. and the headline was West Side Gory, which is just like, they, a lot of people are dead, but they're just in the room trying to find this ridiculous theatrical pun. Right. Uh, do you think it was more crass back in the 20s? 
No, it wasn't necessarily. Look, I mean, I remember back in the 70s, um, uh, I forget, it was either the Post or the News, you know, uh, famous headline, Headless Body and Topless Bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you're always going to have this sensationalism. A lot of it now is not in print journalism, right? I mean, a lot of it now. Right. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, there's always something inherently sensationalistic about covering gruesome, boring, true crimes. Uh, you know, it partly depends on how much you want to exploit that. So, you know, I, I don't think true. I, I really think the only changes in true crime, how we uh, digest it, how we experience it, you know, are mostly technological now. You know, the, the appetite for reading about this stuff or watching about this stuff hasn't changed. I mean, that's just part of human nature. You know, that goes back even before there was such a thing as print. You know, back in the pre-Gutenberg era, era, you know, there were these murder ballads. I'm sure you know about them. I mean, every time a gruesome murder happened, somebody would turn it into a song or a poem. Uh, and, you know, many of those are incredibly gruesome and sensationalistic. Right. So really, you know, human nature doesn't change. The appetite for true crime doesn't change. Uh, the way true crime is presented doesn't change. The only thing that changes is the technolo- you know, the technologic technology of transmission. I guess out of my own self-interest, I do have a question regarding last podcast on the left. Uh, obviously, you've listened to some episodes. We deliver the true crime news in a way that may have never existed before. Yeah. I'm just interested to hear what your thoughts were when you first heard us um, talking about true crime in the way that we do. Were you like, this is a total bastardization of everything I love and worked so hard for? <laughs> or did you sort of like the uh, the sugar to help the medicine go down? Um, no, no. Uh, you know, I, I saw you guys, uh, in a certain kind of tradition, you know, I remember back in the, uh, I guess seventies also, maybe later, uh, there was a, a fanzine, um, called murder can be fun. I love murder can be fun. I love it. Yeah. yeah. You can still get, yeah. I, I love that. It's a, it's a great zine out there. You know, I mean, one of the things that people are reluctant to admit to um, but I think it's important to admit to, you know, is that this is a form of entertainment. You know, when you hear these stories about true crime, you guys are, you know, just very, very open about that. And that's great. Um, you know, I think people should accept that in themselves. You know, one of the things I'm always struck by, you know, when I meet people who've read my work and so on and so forth, you know, people often rationalize their fascination with true crime. I'm interested in the human condition and the way the human mind works, and I do believe that that is up to a point. But sure, you also like hearing about people getting their heads chopped off a little bit. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, basically, you know, it's how you tell stories about these crimes. You know, people want you know want to hear stories. I mean, you guys tell your stories in this incredibly engaging way. So. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you very you for much. Saying nice things. <laughs> do you um, do you get hit up in the in the true crime arena? Uh, we I feel like there's a lot of people because we do it all too, right? Because we also do the paranormal and we do the, the all various aspects of macabre things. So we have a whole swath of different people that we reach and people that are interested in the show. Do you yourself get reached out to by a lot of like? interesting quote-unquote interesting people like do you get reached out to by a lot of like goth chicks and psychos who want to kill you and stuff like that or people who'd be like i want you to write a book about me i'll show you the evidence 
Yeah, yeah. Um, not infrequently. Um, I will get uh, emails or whatever. Um, you know, I'm not a social media person, but I have a, I'm not on Facebook, but I have a Facebook page that somebody else basically keeps for me. And if somebody contacts me, you should forward it. So, yeah, I mean, I'll often or not infrequently be contacted by somebody who has this amazing story about how her uncle was killed by a serial killer or whatever. And uh, maybe I want to write a book about it. You know, things like that. <laughs> Give it to me. Give me the material. But isn't that sad, though, that you have to tell that person, yeah, it's just not that exciting of a murder. And it's like they've already <laughs> lost their uncle or their father or their brother. And they're just like, ah, you kind of lose twice because pretty standard stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of have my standard answer, which is, mo- which is basically true. I mean, I'm a... You know, I, I write historical true crime. Um, you know, my books are almost entirely, well, my f- full-length books are, are pretty much all about people who are no longer alive. You know, it goes right. back to the 19th century or the 20s. Or the, I think probably the most recent uh, criminal I covered was Ed Gein. You know, that was like mm-hmm. 1957. So, Yeah, that's what I was – like what is it about historical true crime that, you know – piques your interest so much like why is it that historical true crime is what you decided to focus on well partly it's uh you know it has to do in a way with my academic background i mean one of the reasons i became a you know an english professor uh is i love doing research uh and um doing this historical true crime allows me both to gratify uh my own morbid interests uh, and my own, you know, interest in, in extreme psychological criminal aberration and horror, uh, you know, with my, with my, again, sort of scholarly interest in doing a lot of digging around and doing a lot of research. Uh, you know, the other thing is, um, and, and again, this goes, I think, also to your show. You know, it's, it's, there are so many incredibly gruesome crimes if you read newspapers at, at any time in any day, you'll come across horrific crimes. Yeah. You know, but but there are a certain number of crimes that just there are these amazing stories, you know, and there are these amazing stories that take place in certain years and in a way help illuminate certain years. You know, like the Ragged Stranger, you know, tells you a lot about tabloid journalism in the 1920s. You know, so I'm always interested in what the particular crimes that fascinate people have to say about that particular era. So I also like how you put, we were speaking, I, I believe I, we saw you speak several years ago. And then uh, recently you were, you, you were sensitive about the idea, but you love telling the stories of these grand villains, like true living monsters, like H.H. H. Holmes, uh, Albert Fish, the, the these these like legends essentially that became real and it's where where do you see that now like do you kind of like do you ever aim towards something contemporary or does history really allow those stories to unfold and then you can see more of the context is that why does that help or would you would you aim to, would you be able to have the same sort of resource materials if you were going after somebody more recent well theoretically you know again i'm interested in when I, when I first started writing in this genre, um, you know, if you read my Ed Gein book, for example, or Albert Fish book, 
I, I don't even use the word serial killer because nobody was using the term back then. Um, and I mean, it, it had started to enter the language, but you know, it hadn't become this big, huge thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought I was inventing a new genre. Um, I thought of it as true horror more than true crime mm-hmm. because I'm interested in writing about, you know, these very rare psychos, uh, who take on the stature of these mythic monsters. Uh, and you know, it's interesting to me again, why certain criminals achieve that kind of status in the culture. Um, so, you know, I look for certain cases, you know, again, it's in, in, in a book I've just finished, I've just finished a book about, um, uh, the worst school massacre in U S history, something called the bath school disaster of 1927, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I begin the book by talking about this horrific crime that happened in Connecticut a few years ago. That was on the national news. It was covered by NBC News, where these two guys broke into the house of this doctor. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, and, that was disgusting. Yeah. And, you know, he ended up burning, you know, the wife and the kids alive. And you know, they made the wife go take all this money out in the ATM. Now, the father survived and he was on Oprah Winfrey. And yeah. then that, that episode was very traumatic. Yeah. But I defy you. You know, I can't even, and I was just rereading my own manuscript to name the two guys who did it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's so fucked up. I go to why I can't remember their name. I was like, just so funny. I was thinking, like, why do I not remember their names? Because they don't have the 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 bio. They don't have the villain description. Yeah, I mean, they, there's something, you know, again, it's this incredibly appalling crime. You know, but but somehow... You know, the story of those two guys, except for this appalling crime, is totally uninteresting. Yeah. You know, where, you know, you talk about an Ed Gein or, and obviously there are these much more recent figures like Ted Bundy uh, or Henry Lee Lucas, you know, who have achieved that kind of uh, status. So, you know, it's not just like guys from the way distant past. Right. Uh, you know, but but again, it's a little I, I think in a way, the most recent examples of American criminals uh, who have achieved that kind of thing are, are the Columbine killers. Yeah. You know, can't think of anybody more recent than that. I mean, maybe, you know, this, uh, the Sandy Hook shooting, but, you know, but right. definitely Columbine killers. You know, I mean, yeah, they, of course, you know, they set out to be legends and they kind of have achieved that. Well, I guess speaking of Columbine, I mean, obviously, Eric and Dylan, they sort of um, represented the 1990s in a way, you know, the late 90s, uh, the sort of disgruntled youth movement, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Is there any correlation or like how would you view if you're just looking at true crime through the lens of history? Is -hmm. there any difference between the true crime of the 20s? We're talking about World War One, late 30s, World War Two, Vietnam. Uh, you know, the 60s counterculture. Is there any, if you're just looking at true crime through modern history of America, is there any differences within the crimes that sort of reflect the new reality that they're taking place in? Well, you know, I think what's interesting is not so much, you know, that there are differences in crimes, although, you know, for whatever reason, for example, there was, you know, starting in the late 70s into the 80s, you know, what I think of as this golden age of serial murder. I mean, there was something in the culture, you know. I'm just that, so happy we can say that on this show. Well, yes. we're, we're now in the golden age of the mass shooter. Oh, like, wow. Hey, that's that's yeah, really yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. We're not in the, yeah, we're not in the, the serial killer ages back then. We're now in mass shooter days. Oh, wonderful. 
That's absolutely true. And, you know, the other thing, you know, that is interesting to me is, you know, not so much. I mean, I do think there were certain cultural conditions that produced people like Gacy and the Hillside Stranglers and Dahmer and all those people. Um, but what's interesting is why certain types of crimes um, become these cultural obsessions. Mm-hmm. You know, because there, I think that does reflect some kind of large free-floating cultural anxiety of the time. You know, I, I, I think I first became aware of this when I was doing a book years ago called The Devil's Gentleman about this notorious poison murder case that happened around 1900. Uh, and I discovered, you know, that in the late 19th century, around the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, poison murderers were like what serial killers became like in the night seven. You know, the culture was just obsessed with these poison murders, mm. even though... You know, as with serial killers, you know, there was like they represented a tiny infinitesimal fraction of crimes. But if you read the newspapers, it was like there was this incredible epidemic of poison murders. And and what I concluded was, you know, that Americans were kind of obsessed with this because the poison murderer embodied or incarnated this very widespread anxiety, you know, about all this toxic stuff. Right. You know, that you, you know, you never knew what food you were going to eat, this is pre-FDA, you know, is going to kill you. So there was all this anxiety about ingesting poison. And, you know, the poison murderer became, again, this mythic incarnation, the boogeyman, you know, of this cultural anxiety. In the same way the serial killer did, I think, in the free, sexually free-willing 1970s and 80s and so on and so forth. So, and now uh, you don't feel only really be worried about poison as if you're married. And you have a really oh, yeah. strong life insurance policy somewhere in there because that's my main fear. I don't understand life insurance. I'll never give. I'm not giving anyone a payout when I die. <laughs> oh, well, that's very generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> the only acceptable reason to interrupt a podcast? Your dog. <laughs> that was your dog. Saying thank you for BarkBox. You can take a minute now. You pet your dog. You're going to learn about Bark. It's the company dedicated to making dogs happy. Yay. Every month, BarkBox designs and delivers a whole new collection of toys and treats just for your best bud. No, Wendy, I can't get you a whip. You're too cute for weapons. Every treat is made with yummy, healthy, all-natural ingredients like pumpkin and sweet potato. Mmm, tubers. My dogs love their toys selectively, but BarkBox sends good little ones for their little tiny mouths. They have little mouths, but strong, big spirits, so they fight over the little toys. I imagine they think that they are hunting and going after little bugs and rats, and oh, they love their life, and they love the, They love what BarkBox brings, because BarkBox brings the bark and puts it in a box. Yep. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com slash L-E-F-T. My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Jackie Zabrowski. She shops all year thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it. But guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown.
All right, give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the Aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do. And the memories keep cycling and I get emotional. And we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy. And that is not sad. That is celebratory. So you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents' accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse pics over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So I... Harold, going back uh, a little bit to um, what were you saying about the uh, sensationalism of uh, journalism back in the 20s and even back into the 1800s, like you do a ton of historical research. And I know when we're looking at uh, a, a story and we're trying to figure out the character of a guy, like sometimes you'll see one detail that you don't see anywhere else. It's just in one source, but it changes the mm. entire content, uh, it changes the entire story. If this one detail is true, then the entire story changes. Like, when you're doing historical research, like, yeah. how, how do you decide whether to go with that detail or not? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, uh, back in the late 19th century in particular, when you had, back then, pre-tablet, it was called yellow journalism, you probably know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember my high school history class a little bit. There's some, <laughs> some, there's some bits in there. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember studying that in high school history, but that's good. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, those people had no qualms about making shit up, you know. So um, generally speaking, you know, I would before I would include something like that, I would try to find if there were any other corroborating sources uh, or if this just was one thing that appeared in one newspaper or whatever. Um, because really, you can't always trust that stuff. You know, is like never, you know, never let, uh, you know, never let, um, a, a, you know, a fact get in the way of a good story. So, um, yeah, 
So you do have to be careful. And I guess the inverse of that, have you ever left out details because they didn't fit a narrative you wanted to sort of portray? Um, no, I don't think I have. I mean, I might have possibly, I can't think of an example. Um, you know, I might have, uh, tried to present that fact in a certain way, in a certain mm-hmm. light, you know, but, um, but I mean, I, I don't recall ever like, you know, discovering like, wow, Ed Gein didn't really dig up those bodies. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> right. That would suck. So you don't <laughs> like they're like, man, I can throw out all of this bullshit now. I, I actually got to take that back a little bit um, because um, by the time I got to the end of my book on H.H. H. Holmes, um, I had kind of concluded um, and I still feel this way <laughs> that like 90 percent of what was written about him, what I even wrote about him. Um, certainly what appears in The Devil in the White City, was actually probably not true. Ooh. <laughs> like what? Like what What are the, yeah, what's the what? worst, what's the worst offensives of Devil in the White City? I really hope that Minnie and Nanny are true. <laughs> they probably are true, but what I have grave doubts about is that anybody was killed in his hotel. Really? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Minnie and Nanny, but I mean, all this stuff about you know, that it was this murder hotel and all these people were coming to visit the World's Fair and then disappearing. You know, I sort of think that was kind of made up by the newspapers. Uh, but then H.H. H. Holmes is just a guy who runs a bad pharmacy. Right? No, he's just an insurance scam. Well, I mean, he did. He was definitely a serial killer. Um, and I believe he probably was responsible for at least seven deaths, uh, including the uh, Peitzel children and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's like, there is no historical – you figure if he's killing all these people who are coming to the World's Fair, like some family member would have inquired what happened to their husband, brother, cousin. You know what I mean? There's like nothing to indicate that anybody ever filed a missing persons report You know about anybody who came to the World's Fair and stayed at uh, – you know, rented a room. Uh, at home yeah, that's to- because they all took out life insurance and everyone <laughs> was secretly happy that they're dead. You hadn't thought about that possibility. <laughs> well, was there any corroborating evidence uh, with all the contractors who said that he had me build this strange shoot and had, he had this other guy build this room with no... Was there any corroboration yeah. with those well, guys? There was some corroboration about that. But again, you know, first of all, if you look at pictures of the castle, you know, just this like little building. Yeah. Um, but, but the other thing was, you know, probably Holmes did, you know, hire and fire contractors. I mean, he was a con man. Um, other people have done that, including our current president, but, you know, the, <laughs> but, 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 you know, I'm sure the house was, I'm sure there were staircases that didn't lead anywhere um, and weird things. But, but you know, you can see that the, the, the newspapers immediately turned these into this incredibly sinister thing. Right. You know, there'd be some shoot or something, and then suddenly it became, you know, a shoot leading down to this torture dungeon and so on and so forth. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff was just wild fantasy. No! Well, 
I am happy that the media did portray it in that way, though, because I think without that portrayal of H.H. Holmes's torture mansion, we wouldn't have nothing but trouble. I don't think that I don't think that Dan Aykroyd would have come up with that beautiful structure they had in the film, the home that uh, they did the Humpty in. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, again, you know, um, that famous line from the John Ford movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. You know, when the truth becomes legend, print the legend. So. Right. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm with that. I was always I, I I don't know if you could tell I was a 14 year old devotee to Hunter S. Thompson. So at some point that at my young age, his whole concept of the, the gonzo form of telling a story that be like sometimes just the gist, even though it's not necessarily technically full of actual hard facts. Sometimes it can be very, uh, it can be accurate, and it's just more fun. Totally. Well, you know, I used to teach a class before I retired and started playing Red Dead Redemption all the time. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I used to um, teach a class on myth, and, and uh, uh, I would quote the, the last line of the first chapter of Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, where the narrator says, it's the truth, even if it didn't happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you can get at these deeper truths, uh, you know, even by presenting facts in a certain way that aren't strictly historically accurate. So. Can I ask you something about about truth? This is a question I've been we've wrestled quite a bit on the show, and this is really just about your opinion. I you know I don't know whether or not you're going to know for certain or what you have ever had kind of drug like drag up in your research. Um, how much credit do you give the confessions of serial killers? I was like, like we were talking about this quite often because like Ted Bundy at the very end decided to tell everybody that he was a cannibal. Uh, like all, all these types of things where they, they it, how often or not is a serial killer's confessions just extended fantasies? And in what cases have you seen confessions like be corroborated by stuff you've dug up? Like, like we were just saying how like you you basically showed that H. H. Holmes the whole story about the inside of the hotel is might be a sham. Where it's like, how do you feel? How often are these guys just making up shit? Uh, very often. Yeah. I mean, H.H. H. Holmes, you know, he published a confession, you know, that he was paid all this money by William Randolph Hearst. And, you know, when you read it and, and look at the stories that had been published before, you know, he was just given Hearst, you know, the story that he was being paid to give him. Hmm. Uh, you know, you've all seen, I'm sure, you know, that recent Netflix thing on Henry Lee Lucas. I mean, that's You're right. It's mm-hmm. it's wild. I just finished it last night, Me and too. I didn't, I on because we we covered Henry Lee Lucas years ago, and so now you relook at it and be like, man, these these two, the two dumbest men in the world took the law enforcement, Texas law enforcement, for the ride of the century. Yeah, well, you know, Lucas is obviously a very extreme case, um, you know, but the thing about most serial murders. Uh, is, you know, they're psychopathic con artists, uh, and their word is just not to be trusted. Um, I mean, I think, you know, one of the rare exceptions to that uh, was Jeffrey Dahmer, um, because I think Dahmer also, uh, you know, did experience some genuine remorse, which was also Mm -hmm. unusual for those people. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, he really wanted as much as anything else, uh, to try to understand himself. 
uh, and what drove him to his crimes. Um, right. But for the most part, you know, Gacy, all those people, Bundy, for Mucky, you just can't believe a word they're saying. What What did you think yeah. about um, the questioning of Ed Gein? Like when they were asking him about, like, did you ever put the vaginas near your penis and dance around? And he just said things like, might be I did that. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's so he's like the Forrest Gump cute. of serial killers. <laughs> he is cute. Or yeah. of grave robbers, rather. Um, yeah, Gene's an interesting case. I mean, I it's really hard to tell. Uh, you know, I mean, there obviously was a lot of physical evidence uh, that corroborated his confession. So in a general way, I think that, uh, you know, what he was saying was accurate. Um, you know, it's also, you know, a lot of, as you saw with Henry Lucas, I mean, people sometimes, you know, put words into the mouths of some of these people. Mm. And, uh, you know, they sometimes just say what they think their interrogators want them to hear. Um, but, you know, with Gein from all available evidence, it's likely that most of what he confessed to was true. So. Hell yeah. Good. I mean, I mean, I know that makes. I'm so, I'm so saddened by. You H. just H. want to hear. You just want honesty. I, that so, is Henry's. Henry's faith in humanity is strangely, strangely yeah, shattered. Like disillusioned, and so you know, really feel bad now. I so I'm so, I'm like legitimately bummed out. Oh man. Aww. I'm sorry. No, Next thing you're we're going to find out the Grim Sleeper didn't even rest very well. <laughs> no, he had a horrible time resting and sleeping. What do you, Harold, what do you think comes first, the media or the actions? Like, obviously, we see a rise of mass shootings after Columbine. The way the media covered Columbine, as we've talked about extensively, was horrible and uh, completely wrong. Almost made them, Dylan and Eric, look like anti-heroes in a strange way. Yeah, the whole bully narrative, which was completely wrong. Yes, because obviously they were the bullies. And now we see this massive rise in mass shootings. The media coverage is 24-7 news. You can become a celebrity overnight. You'll be on the front pages of Rolling Stone. If you look at the Sharnov, the man with the Boston, the man behind the Boston Marathon bombing, one of them. Do you think that what what's media's role in provoking true crime or prov- provoking violence? Do you give any credence to the notion that they are um, sort of helping move along what we're seeing right now? Um, well, you know, they're obviously, you know, copycat killers and so on and so forth. But, you know, the media, well, some of the more legitimate medias in the business of transmitting the news um, – and, you know, the more exploitive tabloid media, you know, I don't think it um, I don't think it promotes crime. I think, again, they're in the business of giving the audience the stories it wants to hear. You know, the mm-hmm. fact is people are fascinated by this stuff. You know, people didn't want to read about all this stuff or watch cable news about it or listen to podcasts about it. You know, um, you know, the media would just stop supplying those stories. So I don't think you can, you know, I feel very strongly, you know, that the media, you know, it's like, you know, complaints about, you know, movies inspiring crimes and so Mm, on. You know, the media has, I think, very limited power in determining what kind of stories the public wants to hear. And you see that like with any blockbuster movie, well, with any big budget movie, that's a total flop. Yeah, right. You know, you know, people think like Hollywood, you know, has this like mind control thing over the audience. 
you know, and can just instill all this stuff in the audience. You know, but if the audience isn't interested in seeing, you know, what, you know, uh, the new Terminator movie, you know, they're just not going to go see the new Terminator movie. It's not like Hollywood could make you see the new Terminator movie. So, right. well, it's the narrative around Joker. Remember, Joker came out, and the narrative around it was they were like, it's going to inspire people to start shooting people at the movie theaters, up to a point where I was like, I think you want people to shoot people at the yeah. movie theaters because mm-hmm. right. then it shows that you're right and that the Joker is to blame somehow, even though it's just a much too skinny Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun movie. Like, I loved it. Joker. I loved it. Like, it's, it's all right. It could have yeah. been funnier for a movie about a comedian, but you know. <laughs> well, you know, I remember just reading it when uh, Fred Easton Ellis' American Psycho came out. Mm-hmm. You know, there was all this stuff about, you know, who was going to inspire a rash of, like, psychos doing horrible things to women. Um, so, you know, people... And, and they didn't realize you just had to just sit back and dudes were going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there was... I mean, I know, like, uh, Luca Magnata said that, like, American Psycho was one of his favorite movies. But, oh, yeah. I mean, well, but he also true. loved, like, Basic Instinct. He also loved also... He loved Mickey Mouse. Like, these guys are into what they're going to be into, and they're going to do what they're going to do. I think no matter what, these guys mm-hmm. are going to do what they're going to do. They're not going to be inspired by anything or spurred on by anything. They may gravitate gravitate towards that stuff, but I don't think they're to blame. I based my entire comedy career off of Grandpa from House of a Thousand Corpses, <laughs> and I found that the stand-up bits that he did in that movie only worked with a certain audience. <laughs> well, you know, people have a very simplistic view of the relationship between... Um, popular media and human behavior, you know, mostly, you know, it's appealing to certain kinds of fantasies that people have, often forbidden and taboo fantasies that they need some outlet for, um, you know. And the other thing is what I've discovered with uh, psychopathic killers, you don't know what's going to set them off. Mm. You know, I mean, there are you know, Charles Manson you know, ordered the Sharon Tate murders after listening to the Beatles' White Album, you know, which is one of the most benign pieces of pop culture ever created. You know, the guy who shot John Lennon was inspired by Holden Caulfield and Catcher the Rye. So, you you know, you don't know what's going to set off a psycho. And as opposed to the vast mass audience, you know, this stuff is allowing them to indulge in certain kinds of possibly forbidden fantasies and daydreams that they do need some kind of outlet for. Right. So well, I guess sort of in, in that vein, when it comes to nature versus nurture, what, what do you weigh more? Do you think these are genetically flawed people or do you think it has to also be a yeah. kind of a perfect environment to cultivate a yeah. serial killer? Yeah. yeah, I think it's probably a combination of both. I mean, you know, I've come more and more to believe that one you know, common denominator among most of these kinds of criminals is extreme being subjected uh, from their earliest childhoods to extreme forms of humiliation. Mm. Yeah. Logical, sexual, physical, emotional. I mean, uh, you know, I think there has to be some other element, some neurological element. So in that sense, it's probably a combination of nature and nurture. But the nurture thing is definitely a key component to it. So going to uh, one of your most recent books, uh, Hell's Princess, yeah. uh, the story of, of Belle Gunness. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, that you taught a class in myth. Like, yeah. was it kind of the myth of Belle Gunness that drew you to the story? 
Or was it the sex appeal? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's what's going to put people in seats, Henry. <laughs> well, she apparently had something going for her. Yeah. But, um, uh, well, I had become very interested in the whole uh, topic of female serial murderers years ago when I wrote a book called Fatal about Jane Toppin, uh, who was a nurse who confessed ultimately to murdering 31 people and was considered to be at one point America's most, well, she was listed in the Guinness Book of World, Guinness Book of World's Records as uh, uh, America's most prolific serial killer before um, John Wayne Gacy. So, what they do, Guinness Book of World Records will be like, oh, he put a Sprite cap on his elbow and walked for a mile fast. <laughs> well, I didn't know they did, like, serial killers. It's always, like, egg carton racing or something weird like that. Um, yeah, I haven't read it for a while. But, you know, but they do have records of everything. And they had, again, most prolific serial murder. Um but anyway, so yeah, I became very interested in female serial killers. And did they send her the damn plaque that you get? <laughs> I'm actually a little bit. I didn't know. It's they just get, a book of records. But you it's literally get a plaque that is like congratulations. Didn't they give a plaque you have to everyone. Do a fun they still have like they the fastest hundred meter race, the fastest. Okay. Like, yeah. But if I, if I'm this chick, I'm demanding a freaking plaque. Yeah. Well, um, maybe. Although she'd probably been dead for about fifty years, but still. Okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> I was very interested in the Belgunis case because. Unlike virtually every other female serial killer uh, that I'm aware of, you know, she also like chopped up these guys. You know, that was a very unusual feature for a female serial killer. They're just usually content with, uh, you know, coising them and watching them suffer horrible deaths uh, <laughs> and not just uh, chopping them up afterwards. Uh. So with 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 Bell Gunness, like when you were writing this book, like, of course, like, you know, we did a series on Bell Gunness not too long ago. And like the because big question, of you, because of the new book, we were yeah. so excited. It was, and it's nice. And, and it's a nice and a thick. Yeah, yeah, it's great. But but with with Bell Gunness, like the question is at the end is like, what happened to Bell Gunness? Like, yeah. where did Bell Gunness go? Like, so when you when you started writing this book, did you think I'm going to fucking figure this out, man? I'm going to be the guy. I did think that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I did. I thought I would solve it. At one point, I thought I had actually solved it um, because I came, you know, I, I, when I work on my books like that, I hire a genealogist to help me do research and stuff. Anyway, we. There was That's a- the key. That's the real key. I was going to, I want to ask you literally about your whole process, if you don't mind, at some point being like, how the hell do you get so much deep dive? But continue with the story. Yeah, yeah anyway, so. Um, I came across uh, a woman um, who had moved to Wisconsin shortly after Belgunis's farm burnt down, and she was using a name that was one of Belgunis's aliases uh, that Bell had used when she put some of these matrimonial ads in the newspapers. So I was pretty sure that I had actually located Belgunis and determined that she had escaped. Um, well, that is a great place for Belle to go. She's a Wisconsin 11. Then. She is. <laughs> she's perfect for Wisconsin. You can go cow tipping with her. You can drink beers with her. Yeah. Um, no, Wisconsin, uh, yeah, it's like a hotbed of you know, these psychos. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but it's so uh, cold there. It is cold. Um, anyway, it turned out that my genealogist discovered that I was completely wrong about this so damn it oh god damn it i was very unhappy that it kind of unresolved at the end one thing i hate ambiguity 
just to let you know. Right. That 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 was going to be my question. Like, do do you prefer the mystery or certainty? And so it's certainty. No, I would have loved. Uh, I would have loved to have been able to solve it. Um, you know, and then at the end, there was that woman Esther Carlson, as you yeah. may remember. You know, that people were absolutely convinced was Bell Gunness. They even, you know, shipped people from Laporte who had known Bell to look at her corpse, and they all swore it was Bell Gunness. But then, uh, I think I, I mentioned there was some researcher from Norway. He has a YouTube presentation on this, uh, who discovered definitively that Esther Carlson wasn't Bell. Um, yes. You know, then there were some people who had gotten permission to exhume uh, the uh, skeletal remains of the body that supposedly was Bell's uh, that was buried in Chicago. Um, and they ran some DNS, DNA tests, but those came back, you know, very indefinite. So, you know, it remains a mystery. And, and my opinion of it keeps changing. You know, sometimes I, I'm sure she died in the fire. Other times, uh, mm. I, you know... Some people write me with certain facts that convince me she did get away. So I'm completely of two minds about it. Where are you at right like today? Where are you at with it? Same place I've always been at. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 you know, it's weird. I mean, I, I, I can't remember a time when I felt so equally split between two completely opposing conclusions. You know, right. you know, every time I have reason to think one is true, something will convince me that the other one is equally plausible. So, so do you do you complete all of your research before you start writing or is it sort of a uh, in tandem process? And yeah. if it's in tandem, have you forgotten to like near the end of the book and been like this as yeah. I don't have an end? <laughs> well, um, I, I do. the I do a lot of it before I start writing. I mean, the bulk of it before I start writing, but inevitably as I'm writing, you know, things, unforeseen things come up, you know, that will necessitate mm. for research or lead me along. And like, you know, when I was writing, uh, I started, I wrote a book called the mad sculptor about this guy, Robert Irwin, you know, committed this horrific triple murder in New York city in 1937. And I did all this incredible research on Irwin, you know, in the library of Congress and all these places started writing the book and then I, I, I started coming across references um, to these other crimes that had happened right before Bob Irwin's crimes uh, in the same neighborhood as his crime. So that, you know, I had to kind of stop in my track and start my tracks and start researching those other crimes to mm. put this certain kind of context, you know. So things like that happen pretty, pretty frequently. Can I can I ask a just a, this is a more general question about true crime in a world? Do you ever feel that uh, do, does do these subjects affect your personal life in any way, shape, or form? Because we've covered so, some of the darker aspects of these stories. Uh, sometimes, I mean, they they fuck with us all the time. Like last year, we did kind of a perspective on Joseph Mengele from like a true crime perspective, like looking at him like as a criminal, essentially. And then, of course, you're looking at his true crimes, which is that he was a cog inside of the the death machine of Auschwitz. So as you're going through it, it wasn't like we at first were like, oh, this will be an interesting way to cover this story. And as you do it, me like, oh, this is like ruining our lives. This is a this is a terrible experience. Like, have you experienced that in any way, shape or form? 
I did. Um, I experienced that when I was writing my book on Albert Fish. Oh, I bet. Mm, yeah. Ugh. Well, uh, we, we experienced that when we were doing our episode on Albert Fish. It's a fucking awful story. <laughs> um, and, you know, I have two daughters. Uh, my daughter, you know, grown women, but, but they were, you know, they were basically, you know, roughly the same age as Grace Budd was at that time. Um, yeah, that was a hard book for me to write. It was a hard book for me to write uh, because of, you know, what Fish was doing, but also... I mean, to some extent, in order for me uh, to write my books, and this was more true in the past than it is now, uh, but I had to go to some very dark places in my own psyche um, mm. in order to really understand the people I was writing about. Yeah. So, you know, that can be obviously a disconcerting experience. Um, but just reading, you know, Fisher's Confessions and you know, I mean, the guy was torturing children. So that was that was the toughest book for me to write. Yeah. Um, you know, when people ask me that question, which they not, you know, they sometimes do, you know, I, I sort of compare my experience to what I imagine a medical student is like, you know, where like, you know, the first t- few times you dissect a corpse, uh, this is incredibly disturbing experience. And after a while, you're like, eating lunch while you're doing it. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, know, so, you know, to some extent you become a little, not inured exactly, but, you know, accustomed to, the, to it. Right. So, yeah. So moving on to, to another killer, like as a former professor, how would you rate Carl Panzram's writing abilities? Yeah, well, Panzram, you know, was, uh, I, I know, you know, I wrote this introduction to uh, uh, this Pans from, you know, autobiography. Yeah, he was uh, kind of a remarkable person. I mean, he was obviously terrifying, but, um, uh, you know, very, very smart. Um, again, it's, well, as I remember, it's been a while since I read them. Um, it, it's hard to know, though, how much he was being edited mm-hmm. uh, by the guy who published it, um, whose name I can't remember, but who also wrote the Birdman of Alcatraz book. Uh, you know, so sometimes, I mean, it does sound very authentic, uh, but it might have been cleaned up a little, you know, by the guy who wrote it in Sam. I can't remember. Right, right. Well, I guess sort of on that uh, similar vein, do you have someone that you're most intrigued by? Any, uh, either someone you've covered or someone you would like to cover? Well, I don't like to use the term favorite serial killer because yeah. I just, the, yeah. That we all we hate all of them. They're horrible scumbags. And you, well, like, what's the most intriguing or fascinating person you've covered or want to cover? Well, you know, I mean, the fascination with Ed Gein never grows old. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, also, you know, kind of an interesting figure because um, I was just talking to somebody, you know, who'd read my book recently. You know, of all the serial killers I've covered, well, first of all, you know, Gein. Um, I don't think falls into the serial killer category. In the uh, serial crafter. Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's kind of an outsider artist, I think. <laughs> yeah, he's going to Hobby Lobby. He's protesting their gay stance on marriage. Um, you know, he, was, he wasn't a, a sadistic sex killer, right? You know, the way Fish was and all the, you know, Gacy and Bundy and all the, basically he was a necrophile, really. Um, yeah. You know, he just ran out of like available corpses. Um, so, you know, he had, to, <laughs> he had to make a couple of his own. So, um, but I mean, the two women he killed, and again, 
not condoning it. Um, you know, but but he, you know, he there were very swift executions. You know, he wasn't into getting off on torturing them and so on. Right, you know, right. They're suffering. Um, and yeah, I mean, Gene is just this incredibly, you know, fascinating figure. Uh, not only in terms of his psychopathology, but you know, some weird way that you know, there's something atavistic about Gene's crimes. You know, it's like you're stepping into this world of pagan religion, mm-hmm. you know, where you know, Aztec sacrifices where they skin, you know, flay victims and wear their skin and. You know, just all that stuff. You know, Gein, you know, has been behind the, what I consider the three most terrifying horror movies of the modern era. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Psycho, and Sons of the Lambs. You know, there's something very, very resonant about his, you know, about his case. Uh, and I, I think that'll always be true. Because Private World, it all happened inside of his own mind almost. I've been endlessly fascinated about the idea of the connection between serial killers and and people like Ed Gein. I mean, you know, whatever you we'll just call Ed Gein serial killer for shorthand, at, in their homes. And the idea of the, when some of them, the ones that operate inside of their own, um, the only word I could really use is lair, of they they compartmentalize physically their own mind. Like Ed Gein's home is so fascinating to me. The whole house is in disarray filled with fucking human viscera, all this bullshit. And then, but his, his mother's room is pristine. And like how same thing with like Gacy, how that rumpus room was where shit went bad. Like the rest of the house was kind of off limits from bad behavior. It was when he went entered literally into a subterranean cave when he became a monster. It, it becomes what you talked about—the idea of the, these these people becoming mythic. Boy, Texas Pete is a sauce and allows you to sauce like you mean it. It's what people gather around. It's generosity in its simplest form, and it's a swagger people have who know what's good. Each Texas Pete hot sauce is packed with bold, balanced flavor. This signature tanginess is what makes it a legendary hot sauce that can be used on just about anything. It's been at the center of dinner table since 1929 and is still heating things up today. You're definitely going to want to try Every flavor. The original hot sauce has a famous secret blend of fermented peppers. The hotter hot sauce is three times hotter than the original, and not for the faint of heart. Sabor by Texas Pete adds authentic Mexican flavor, and their dust-dry seasoning matches the flavor of the original hot sauce in a flavorful dry rub. Tell you what, the other day I was having myself a good old refried bean burrito, and I wanted a little bit of kick to my morning, so I got myself some cha Texas Pete sriracha sauce, and I smothered those refried beans and that cheese and them eggs in a whole bunch of cha. And it started off my day. Correct. Texas Pete. Sauce like you mean it. Visit TexasPete.com and use the store locator to find Texas Pete products as well as purchase sauces and get recipe inspiration. And use the promo code PODCAST24 for 20% off at TexasPete.com. Every day, I fight to set my child up for success, which is why... As I sit and read Carmi and Wendy Dune, trying to explain to them the concepts of the 
savior complex not working, doubling back on itself. The concept of what does it mean to be a living God? What are those limitations? What are those expectations? And honestly, I know they just want chicken. But there are kids out there that need this type of direct help. And IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them understand and master topics in a fun way. Not unlike me, reading children, Dune Messiah, getting to about 365, seeing where they're at, see if they understand anything. There's no more grading these worksheets. IXL grades everything itself. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. You can't even believe it! You don't want to make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And last podcast in the left listeners could get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash left. Visit IXL.com slash left to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Yeah, we do. Do you love saving money? Oh my God, you bet. Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. That's amazing. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. It's just a better way to watch TV. Get with it, people. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning that your children or significant other can't ruin your queue. Never miss a minute of shows like, oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. You're going to watch it. You're going to love it. You're going to get involved with it. And it's an extravaganza. You're going to love it. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with your seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash left. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash L-E-F-T to get 50% off your first month. Well, speaking of media as well, Henry, uh, this is something that we may have brought into the world. HGTV is working on a new reality show where you can buy the houses of serial killers and murderers. They're going to flip so them. They're yeah. going to start flipping <laughs> those houses. It's a murder house flip show. I think it's actually called like Flip the Murder House. I think it's called Murder House Flip. Murder House Flip. And we talked about this about two years ago in Jess being like, well, that we know we know society is going to be crumbling when they make this show. <laughs> and then look at what they made it. Yeah, well, you know, it could be good. Like if people have trouble selling their houses, they could just like lure a lot of people there and kill them and then sell their house. <laughs> now you're the real estate agent we need. <laughs> like instead of location, 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 it's corpse, 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 corpse. corpse. <laughs> so with, with Ed Gein's crimes, with with uh, the murders of uh, Bernice Warden and uh, and Mary Hogan, like Ed Gein always said that he blacked out. When he may, that he doesn't remember actually committing those crimes. Like, do you do you think that Ed Gein bl- truly did black out, and that it was just some some sort of like inner desire that was driving him, or do you think he said, "I'm going to get a live one now"? You, you know, first of all, with Gein, and one thing about Gein that differentiates him, you know, from most serial murders is that he was psychotic. Um, you know. Most serial murders is, you know, are psychopaths. They're not psychotic. 
you know, Gein was having hallucinations and, you know, I mean, he was, you know, schizophrenic, you know, he was schizophrenic. Um, so, you know, it's hard to know what's going on in his mind at those moments. Uh, you know, my take on, well, you know, there's a Freudian term overdetermined. Uh, Freud used it to mean that there's just not one simple cause of a neurosis or something, you know, a complex of things. Um, you know, with killing people like Mary Hogan and Bernie Swarden, you know, there's obviously on the one, you know, some, uh, you know, again, to be Freudian, some other thing going on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He needed it's something about mommy. It's something about being inside a mommy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was more it's like, oh, Bernice and, and Mary, that's bad mommy. That's bad good mommy. mommy. Good, good mommy's dead. Bad right. mommy's alive. Now bad mommy needs to be dead, too. If the last words I hear are, you're bad, mommy, and then I get shot in the head, I'm going to be real mad. Um, so, yeah. And and again, um, because, you know, he, he was a, a classic necrophile, uh, you know, I think he, at, at the point at which he was running low on... Um, you know, available corpses of elderly women in the local graveyards. You know, he had to go out and make a couple. So, I do like the idea of a classic grave robber or corpse fucker. I guess that's what we could call him. He's <laughs> well, like, I just think of like Humphrey Humphrey Bogart and like um, Casablanca, very fancy, smoking a cigarette, real cool, very chill, classic. Uh, yeah, well, I didn't have that in mind. But you know, if you look at, for example. Craft uh, Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis, you know, which was this, you know, classic book of criminal aberration and sexual aberration. Um, you know, has a section on necrophiles, uh, and you know, Gein fits the profile, except for the fact that we don't know if he actually had sex with them. You know, as you know from his confession, mm-hmm. you know, he said he was put off by the uh, smell, which yeah. suggests that you know he was at least thinking about it anyway. I feel like the only time he ever came was on an accident, and then he put himself in the bathroom for a week and shamed himself. <laughs> just hung out in the tub. Yep, just sitting there talking about the smell, eating a Ugh. slice of apple pie with a piece of cheddar cheese on top. Loving his life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing, I mean, one of the reasons, again, it's possible to feel a modicum of sympathy for Dean is, you know, most of his victims were already dead. Um, you know, there were corpses that he entombed. Uh, and the two women that we know for sure he killed, uh, he executed swiftly as opposed to, again, subjecting them to these horrible tortures in the way that Gacy, Bundy, et cetera, et cetera, did. So. Right, right. I mean, do you think – I mean, I know that this is a question that many people have asked you a million times, but do you think he killed his brother? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I tend to think he probably did not kill his brother. Um, yeah, it's hard to know, but, but, you know, it, it doesn't quite seem to fit in with his MO. Uh, you know, I think it's equally as likely that, you know, often when these kinds of killers are caught, people immediately attribute retroactively all these other mysterious crimes to them. Uh, mm. killing his brother again, seem does seem to me to be a little, uh, inconsistent, uh, with the kinds of crimes that Gein committed. Uh, and again, given the circumstances of his death and what was going on at the time, it does seem equally as likely to me, you know, that Henry died uh, of a heart attack or, you know, smoke inhalation or whatever. You know, yeah. 
I mean, I know they tried the Ed, with Ed Gein. They tried putting all sorts of disappearances. But that, that was the funny thing about uh, Wisconsin around that time. Is so many people were going missing. They were going to Los Angeles to make it big in Hollywood. Like there was a little girl that disappeared. There was a guy that disappeared on a, a hunting trip. Like there were a lot of people going missing in the Midwest during that time period. It's called the Midwest divorce. You go hunting and never come back. Hey, well, I went there to do my research. Um, you know, I was told that that area of Wisconsin had a higher per capita murder rate than New York City at the time. Of course, I mean, they had very few people there in general. <laughs> but per capita, people did often disappear in those woods. Uh, mm. uh, it was a little bit of a scary place. Uh, do you have any serial killer memorabilia? Do you go as far as to collect? No, um, I don't. I mean, I have a couple of things that have been gifted to me. <laughs> but, um, but no, I'm not a collector. What I do is um, when, I, when I'm writing a book, I do like to often have some kind of object uh, that's connected to the case I'm writing about mm. uh, on my desk is whatever. So, for example, um, the book I just finished on the Bath School Disaster, you know, the Bath School Disaster, there was this guy. It, it took place in a little town called Bath, Michigan in 1927, uh, and a guy named uh, Andrew Kehoe, who is a respected member of the community, was on the school board. Uh, rigged uh, their public school. They had this shiny new public school. <laughs> this, this is a crazy, crazy story. story. Yeah, this story's nuts. fucking crazy. Yeah. Anyway, he rigged um, the basement of the school with uh, uh, all this World War I surplus dynamite, which had been sold to farmers in the form of something called pyrotol. You know, pyrotol looked just like dynamite, but it was uh, a less potent explosive. And it was being sold to farmers you know, so they can get rid of tree stumps and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, Kehoe purchased like 500 pounds of this stuff and rigged the basement of the school with it and blew the school up on the last day of school. That's crazy. Yeah. He intended to destroy the whole school, and if he had, he would have killed basically the entire juvenile population of the town. Oh, my God. (laughs) Good Lord. Uh, He ended up killing like 40 children, though. Anyway... So I can show it to you. Wait, hold on a second. Um, I was looking around eBay, and I don't know if you can see it. Oh, cool. Part of a pyrotol container uh, of the exact thing that Andrew Kehoe would have used. That's fun as shit. <laughs> That's fun as shit. That's a great piece of memorabilia. And it's not like fully morbid, but it's right. morbid adjacent. Yeah. yeah what, and, what is it with having one of the objects near you while you write? What, what's the... Uh, you know, it just sort of, in a way, takes me to the place I'm writing about, you know. Yeah. You could see it in his hands. You could see him loading up the, the, the all of the explosives. All of a sudden, you're in front of an elementary school. You don't know how you got there. You've lined the whole <laughs> yeah. thing with explosives. You've been writing in your journal. I'm going to do it again. You've become Andrew Kehoe. Yeah, it doesn't quite go that far, though that's actually kind of a cool plot. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Harold, what, what has it been like for you over the last 20 years or so to see true crime become not only like socially acceptable, but yeah. kind of hip? Yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, it's it's been very, very interesting. You know, when I first started writing it, it was still such a disreputable genre. 
uh, that I, you know, I couldn't even get Deviant published in hardcover. You know, oh. publisher would only insist on doing it, you know, as a kind of paperback that would have been sold in Greyhound bus stations and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, seeing it, uh, you know, turn into this major cultural thing, well, it makes me feel I was ahead of my time. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know you said in uh, an email that you uh, that you wrote to us that uh, your fans have been changing lately. Oh, well, I just wrote because uh, uh, owing, uh, I think, to a large extent uh, to the publicity uh, that you guys have given me, uh, I seem to, you know, people like a younger, well, your age, like, you know. We are not young, but we are not, we are not young. We're pushing 40. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, no, there are these, you know, like I went into a framing shop not too long ago to get something framed. I can't remember what. And the young woman uh, behind the counter, uh, hair dyed blue, et cetera, et cetera, um, said, well, I just heard, you know, they were just talking about you on last podcast on the left and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So thanks to you guys, uh, I am now um, being recognized by an entire new generation of people. That's well, great, man. Hopefully you, you get some you free were... beer, some free tacos. That's the best. <laughs> that's the most you can ask for. Is that's just all I want. Occasionally you'll get something for free. It's really, it's really, really very nice when it happens. Uh, I I think it's also because of the tone in which that you write, which I think yeah. attracted us, yeah. which is this idea that it's I, I it doesn't have to be dry and serious for you to tastefully talk about these morbid facts. They, they, you don't you could throw some some fucking I don't know what it is. It's, there's there's entertainment value in there, which is why we get into this topic to begin with. Right. Well, also, you know, you guys, I'd like to think to a certain extent, me too, um, you know, bring your personalities to bear on this stuff. You know, again, it's about storytelling, right? You know, it's about how you tell the stories uh, and whether the way you tell the stories is going to resonate with the audience. So, you know, you guys do that, uh, you know, brilliantly in your way. Um, You know, I like to think, you know, I, I have my own voice. Um, when I write my book, so of course, you, I mean the ragged stranger. I mean it, it's it is absolutely in in your voice. It's a it's a great read. Yeah. Are there any people that you don't like uh, their presentation? You dislike the presentation? Ah, we it, can't talk shit on the mic. We gotta Nancy say, Gray, I want I real juice. No, Grace. I want real juice. We can't talk about real gossip. I want the real gossip after the show. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm not a uh, again. You know, I am old. Uh, I'm not a big podcast listener. I mean, what I what I there are two things I dislike, <clears throat> excuse me, in true crime. One is, you know, when people just embellish or speculate too much. I'm talking about written true crime. You know, maybe this happened. It's possible. Right. So I was thinking this, you know, uh, you know, I don't really know what the dialogue was, but I'm imagining this is what they might have said to each other. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, we got in trouble once for criticizing a writer for doing that too much. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, have you ever read the Dune series? Oh, my <laughs> God. You're not going to bring up Dune, Henry. I read the original Dune many years ago. Nah. I liked the uh, uh, the David Lynch version. Yeah, buddy. 
That's what I'm saying. But, um, you know, and I saw the documentary about the Jodorowsky project that never came to be. So, but yeah, but I never read any of the ones beyond the first one. He, uh, he, uh, Jodorowsky invented the summer blockbuster. I love that documentary. It's really amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking for anybody to talk to about Dune. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my, I guess the, the last kind of question that I have is, and it's a little bit corny, but if you had to be killed by any of these serial killers, who would you want to be killed by? Are you going to hit him with a fuck, Mary kill? No. <laughs> that's no, no. no that's, this is the absolute opposite. He is going to be killed by them, and he's not going to have sex with them or marry them. Yeah, I guess one that wouldn't spend like a really long time torturing me. Yeah. Ah. You wouldn't just want one sweet embrace from Belle Gunnis just to see what all the hubbub was about, just for a second, just to see what her Swedish kisses were like. Yeah, I think I'd rather go with Albert Fish there. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, man. We've been talking to Harold Schechter. Uh, If you have not read any of his books, please go out there, support this man. He is... um, is grandfather offensive to say the grandfather of true crime? Are we that, the, the well, father you, of true crime in, does liter- in the have literary anything else? sense? Do you have anything else you want to pepper the man with while we got him captive? Uh, I mean, I, I just, you know, thank you so much for writing so many fantastic books uh, that have captivated us and inspired us uh, throughout the years. I, I don't know if Flash Podcast would be the show that it is without you. So just, oh, well, that, that just, means a lot to me. And thank you guys for having me on. Really appreciate it. Live from your grave. All right, there it was our interview with Harold Schechter. That was awesome. That was absolutely wonderful. That did was you, so cool. Do you feel I, satisfied, Marcus? I feel sa- yes. I, I feel satisfied. It was, it was great to hear from him. And uh, of course, if you want to read his uh, his new uh, release, it's called The Ragged Stranger, and it's available on Kindle. And if you have Kindle Unlimited, uh, it's free. So just go and check it out. Download it. You can read it in a, a couple hours. It's just a, a nice little bite sized true crime story. I loved it, especially if you were uh, into the Scott Peterson case. It's fun to see. It's 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 fun to to read a story. It's like, oh, this is if Scott Peterson had actually done it. Damn! Wow, I, I that's a very hot topic that you just dropped very lightly, Marcus. But I'm very yep. excited. One day we will do this that series. I don't know when we will, but it is in the pipeline, and I'm very. So excited. you think it's Scott Peterson pipeline. is innocent? Yeah. Wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, let's just. All right, great. Wow. <laughs> leave, in your, wow. leave your replies in the comments. I'm certain this will be great. That's um, amazing. Well, we gotta I, get into that. And I don't do social media, so you're just going to have to take it. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Well, Dateline told me he was guilty. I'm going to have to go back and see what Stone Phillips had to say. <laughs> Nancy Holy Grace shit. was wrong about something? I don't no. know. No, that comes out of nowhere. I still think he did it. I'm not going to die on this hill. I don't have enough information. All right, you fuckers, we are about to be all around you, all near you, April all 2020. Around. We're coming. Get your dickles at lastpodcastontheleft.com. Pick up them dates, whatever's closest to your home. Don't you want to see my body dance and jiggle? It, it definitely dances and it definitely jiggles. We have a ton of shows coming up. It's going to be New York City on the 7th. This is all starting in April. Okay. You can go and check out uh, lastpodcastontheleft.com to get the exact dates. Uh, it's going to be New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Richmond, Virginia, Durham, North Carolina, Woo. Atlanta, Chicago. Two shows in Chicago. Sweet. We added an extra show in Chicago. Because they legalized weeds. Yeah. See, now you get us twice. That's right. We had Nashville, St. Louis, 
Houston, Austin, Dallas, Lubbock, Denver, Phoenix, Las Vegas, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And now it's time for Marcus to talk to Lubbock. Lubbock? (laughs) (laughs) Went out on a limb for you. Really went out on a limb. Said we need to do Lubbock this tour. I need you to come, Lubbock. I very much need you to come to the show. We need you to come to the show. Uh, and we need you to come out and uh, buy tickets for this one. So come on out if you're in New Mexico, if you're in Oklahoma, if you're anywhere in West Texas, come on out to Lubbock and buy tickets to that show. And if you're in Houston, come on out to that show as well. And uh, Las Vegas as well. We need some people to come out in Las Vegas. All right. So you guys come on out, buy your tickets. Uh, they're available over on lastpodcastontheleft.com. Hell Yeah. Yeah, you fuckers. Come and see us, man. Come see the Lubbock and Vegas are two spots that we've been asked for forever, forever. to come see shows. And we got our first, like, our numbers back, of, and we're doing very well, except in those two places. Yep. Well, that I, I think they buy the tickets late because they never know. You never know when Carrot Top's going to have a hot hit. <laughs> you don't know when Penn and Teller are going to be, you know, premiering. I know you want to be available. Act. I get you want to be. You got to be I, available. I get it. I get it. But come on, come on, Lubbock, come on out. They'll come on come out. On. We can't wait. To, we come on. I'm putting we, my money where my mouth is. <laughs> I told everyone we got to go to Lubbock. People come out to shows in Lubbock. No, come on out. You know we always put our money where our mouth is, and it always works out great. I'm so <laughs> sick. <laughs> all right, everyone, I feel so all. sick. <laughs> thank uh, you all so much for listening. Can't wait to do a show for my mom. Oh, oh just mom mommy. I, I, we, that would be so cute if it was just us and your mom. Just Aww. her staring, going, being like, I thought they had a professional show, but I didn't know how good they got it, how handsome my son was. Honestly, <laughs> if we just had Marcus's mom, we would put on a great show, and that's the only audience we need. That's right. Isn't that nice? Okay, everyone, happy new year. Hope your 2020 has started off all right. Um, if not, hang on in there. We got a whole year to go. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Hopefully a year after that and a few after that, too, but we got a whole one to go. A that's whole the thing with January. Year, we were just looking. It's like the movie Free Solo. We're just looking to the mountain. We're on the bottom of the mountain right now. Uh, time is a construct. It doesn't matter. Well, it uh, definitely does because Marcus always gets mad at me when I'm late. But now I can say that. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean the abstract. You got it. When, we had, when there is a uh, – it's just when there's a time Appointments are crunch. very real. Time is a construct, my friend. <laughs> God damn Appointments it, man. are real. Time is a construct. <laughs> All I know is a wizard is never late. <laughs> it arrives exactly when it intends to. Okay, everyone, hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Hail Gene. Magustulations. Hail me if you would hail me. Henry, who would you like to be killed by? You know me, man. I say just fucking Catherine Knight. Ooh. That first thing, I know that she horribly uh, murdered him, but right before that, that seemed like a lot of fun. Yeah, okay, good choice. Sure, sure. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says here I have to talk about something I need to get off my chest, and I guess I can share it here. I I eat mayonnaise for fun. It's a hobby of mine, and it's an addiction. It's a daily weight on my life. How much I need whipped egg whites and oil crammed into my veins. As soon as I wake up, and a lot of people carry around a lot of different stressors, big and small. Some people are presidents. Some people are soldiers. Some people have to eat mayonnaise, especially with hard-boiled eggs, which is what I eat for lunch. But I guess I should share that in therapy. Because therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And what I do is I just add eggs if I have mayonnaise left over. I just continue to add the eggs. But if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I hope they can help me. My God. I hope they can help me. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LastPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash LastPod. 